You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. World events point to Armageddon and Christ's return to the earth. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed. Armageddon is a Bible term, though often used by political leaders and the news media as a euphemism to describe catastrophes. It is used in the Bible to describe an unprecedented war. The devastating war will conquer Jerusalem and be quickly followed by the dramatic return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth, who will assume power as king over the whole world. World events point to Armageddon and Christ's return. Now, Armageddon is a term which is used reasonably often in society, but perhaps without understanding what it really refers to. Often it's used to refer to some cataclysmic event, some horrendous event which happens, which is perhaps inexplicable, perhaps brings a lot of hardship to people. But tonight we're going to look at it from a biblical point of view. It is in fact a Bible word. The word Armageddon is used in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 16 and in verse 16. We're going to pick up the record in verse 14. We read there, For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and to the whole world, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So there's the word. It's the only time it occurs in the whole of the Bible. And yet that word has been picked up by society to refer to a whole range of things which may be cataclysmic, may be horrific in the lives of men and women and the nations at large. Well, given this is the only passage which refers to Armageddon, let's pause here and just glean what we can from this passage about Armageddon. Firstly, we note that it's involving the kings of the earth or the whole world. So the nations of the world will be gathered together They're going to be gathered to a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Given it's in the Hebrew tongue, we would deduce from that that this place is in the land of Israel. In the Hebrew, it means a heap of sheaves in a valley for threshing. If we look at the scriptures, elsewhere in the scriptures, threshing is used as a symbol of judgment. So it looks like already from what we've seen, God is going to gather the nations of the world together into a place in Israel to bring about his judgments. We note that there is a battle to take place. And we also note that it is called the great day of God Almighty. From which we deduce that at this time, at this great battle, God Almighty will intervene into the affairs of mankind. Well, there's some fundamental things that we find out from this passage in Revelation about the Battle of Armageddon. Tonight we're going to focus on a particular chapter in the Old Testament which gives us a lot of detail about this battle. That chapter is chapter Ezekiel 38 in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 38 paints us a picture gives us a story of an invasion of the land of Israel in which the nation of Israel is overcome. Then God intervenes and overthrows the invader and delivers the nation of Israel. That, in summary, if you like, is the Battle of Armageddon. 
Tonight we're going to pick that apart and discover who are the various parties that take place in this battle. We're going to find out who's the invader. We're going to find out who sides with Israel. We're going to learn a little bit about the battle and most particularly how God intervenes in world affairs. So, if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to Ezekiel 38 because we'll be scarcely moving out of that chapter for the duration of our evening. So, in Ezekiel 38, what does the prophet Ezekiel tell us about Israel at the time of the invasion? Or, if you like, just prior to the invasion? In Ezekiel 38 and verse 8, we read... After many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people, against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Skipping a few verses to verse 11. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, and I'll go to them that are at rest that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, it says in verse 12. So this is talking to the invader, but it's also giving us a picture of what Israel will be like at the time the invader makes his move. So we've put a few words in bold there in those verses which are of particular import. Firstly, we note that it is a land that is brought back from the sword. Well, it's almost 2,000 years ago that the land of Israel was taken over by the Romans. They occupied it for some time and then they took the occupants of the land, the Jews, into captivity in the year AD 70. And it's memorialised on the Arch of Titus, which is found today in the city of Rome. So when the invader comes into the land, they're going to come into a land that is brought back from the sword. Where it's been invaded in the past. It's a land which has seen many battles. The sword has brought much bloodshed in the land of Israel. What else do we know from this verse about the situation of Israel? Well, it talks about the people being gathered out of many peoples brought forth out of the nations. And so it is that the nation of Israel is a very young nation on one hand and an ancient nation on another. It's recently been regathered. In the last century or so, millions of Jews have come from their homes across the globe and journeyed by boat, by plane, by foot, by whatever means to come back to the land that God promised to their forefathers. And so they've been gathered out of many people, brought forth out of the nations. This started early in the 1900s particularly and has continued really ever since. And partway through the last century, the state of Israel itself was reborn. In 1948, in May, the, the nation was declared to be a nation much to the anger of its neighbours. Well, the neighbours were angry and immediately war was declared and they had to fight for their survival. But over the years, they've managed to attain peace with their neighbours. Firstly with Egypt, way back in 1979, where... And Masadat, from Egypt, declared peace with Israel. It wasn't particularly because Egypt wanted to be Israel's best friends, but they'd tried war and that didn't work, so really they thought they'd try something else. And certainly peace has been the better option. Then a number of years passed, till 1994, and Jordan too made peace with Israel 
Again, it was easier to maintain a peaceful relationship than a hostile relationship with their neighbours. Well, that's quite some time ago, isn't it? But in the last 12 months, we've seen a most remarkable set of events where not one, not two, but four nations have declared peace with Israel through the Abraham Accords. We've had first the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco declared peace with Israel. And whereas peace with Egypt and Jordan was somewhat of a convenience, a little bit more than a convenience with Jordan because it also involved agreements around water and so forth, the peace which was declared last year in 2020 with UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco is more than that. It's a warm peace. These are nations that want to deal with Israel. They want to trade with Israel. They want to swap secrets. They want to compare notes on security issues. They've got common enemies. Iran. These are nations which actually want to be friends. They want to deal with Israel. And you can see there on that, that map, maybe a little small, but the... Um, the dark blue there is, is nations which are quite decidedly Israel's enemies. The light blue is those who have made peace with Israel. And the grey ones, well, they're the ones which it's suspected they want to make peace with Israel. In fact, some of it, it's known that they would like to make peace with Israel, but it's a difficult and awkward conversation to have. If you like, watch this space. We would expect to see some movements in, in those, those particular nations. So <clears throat> more and more you could say that the nation of Israel is dwelling safely as the prophet Ezekiel foretold. In Ezekiel 38 verse 8 it says also that this invader would come against the mountains of Israel. Now <clears throat> The mountains of Israel are largely to be found in what's known as the West Bank. So you can see we've got two maps on the, uh, on the screen there. The one on the left shows where the mountains are. The one on the right shows what land was, uh, is known as the West Bank. It's, if you like, occupied territory. Now, obviously, there's a lot of uh, conflict over who rightfully owns that land. And it's the subject of the two-state solution and, and many, many arguments across the international forum. The mountains of Israel are located in what is known as the West Bank. Now, <clears throat> back in 1947, a resolution, Resolution 181, was passed by the UN General Assembly, which, uh, which was going to determine an Arab state alongside the Jewish state that was also passed at the same time. And the Arab state was going to receive all that land, which is known as the West Bank, and in fact uh, a considerable amount more. That land, the West Bank, was officially annexed by Jordan on the 24th of April 1950. Then in 1967, Jordan and Israel were at war amongst other nations alongside Jordan were at war with Israel and in that war Jordan lost the West Bank to Israel in the Six Day War. Some years passed and the desire for peace was as strong as ever and negotiations were happening between Israel and Jordan and on Israel's side the Foreign Minister Shimon Peres was negotiating with King Hussein of Jordan. They had a secret meeting to arrange a peace agreement which was known as the Peres-Hussein-London Agreement. And in this agreement, Peres, on behalf of Israel, said that Israel would concede the West Bank to Jordan. That is, they would give Jordan back the West Bank which Jordan annexed in 1950 seemed to be a good deal and in, in return they would get peace. Seemed to be a good deal to the Foreign Minister 
Shimon Peres. When he got back to Israel, there was a disagreement with the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shemar. He objected. Under no circumstances was he going to let go of the West Bank. No, not for an agreement of peace. And so this secret agreement fell through. Jordan never got the West Bank. In fact, <clears throat> it was later that same year, in December 1987, that the first intifada occurred. And then the Jordanian option became effectively irrelevant. It was then the following year, in July 1988, that Jordan abandoned its claim to the West Bank in favour of a peaceful resolution between Israel and the PLO. So you see, it got dangerously close to Israel handing over the West Bank to Jordan. But how then would the invader in Ezekiel 38 verse 8 come against the mountains of Israel? Instead it would be coming against the mountains of Jordan. But God saw to it that Jordan did not get the mountains of Israel. And of course, since that time, Israel has steadily increased the Israeli settlements in various parts of In fact, one of the main highways traverses through that area, going from Galilee in the north down through to the mountains of Judea below in the south. You can see on that map there's various colour shades in the area denoted as the West Bank. The uh, brown colour is that which, is, uh, which Israel has declared to be Jerusalem's municipality. That's theirs. No arguments, no arguments whatsoever will be entered into on that. The blue is a zone which both Israelis and Arabs can enter. And the, uh, the creamy colour is an area which is reserved for the Arabs. And that creamy colour is getting less and less as Israeli settlements get more and more. You see, Israel is putting their stamp on that area of land known as the Mountains of Israel. The fulfilment of Bible prophecy. The invader will come against the Mountains of Israel. What else do we learn about Israel before the invader comes? Well, he's going to come against desolate places that are now inhabited. Back in 1909, a group of people met on the shores of the Mediterranean <clears throat> in the desolate sand dunes that are there and decided to build a city. The city was to be known as Tel Aviv. And a few years ago, that's a picture of Tel Aviv in 2013. It's now a thriving metropolis. And, and whilst that's one of the main cities of Israel, that's the story all over Israel. Desert sands have been raised to life and vitality. And so the desolate places are now inhabited, just as the prophet foretold. So we've seen what Israel will be like when the invader strikes. Let's now look at who the invader is. This multinational confederacy that will invade Israel. We read of it in Ezekiel 38, in a number of verses there, starting verse 2. Son of man, set thy face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. There's listed there, Persia, Ethiopia and Libya will be with them. Gomer and all his bands, and the house of Tagama of the north quarters. Verse 15 says, Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts. So there's a number of nations mentioned here. And of course, most of them are, are mentioned by their ancient names. There's some which we recognise fairly easily. Persia, today known as Iran, but not so long ago known as Persia. And Persia is still a, a common word in, in our language. We know who we're talking about. We, we refer to Persian rugs and so forth. There's a Persian ethnic group which makes up more than 50% of the nation of Iran. Ethiopia, still a common name. Libya, again, common. But then there's other names which are foreign to us. Magog, Rosh, Meshek, Tubal, Goma, Tagama. These are names which were relevant 
back in the time of Ezekiel, in ancient times. And tonight we're going to do some digging and, and uncover who these refer to. But before we do that, there's also another name there. It's not the name of a nation. It's the name or a title of an individual. Son of man, set thy face against Gog. It's an individual. Gog is described as the prince, the ruler of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal and so forth. So there's an individual, his male, prophesy against him, an individual who is the head of this, this confederacy of nations that are going to come against the nation of Israel. So just keep that in mind and as we try and unpick who these other nations are. We've got here a map which is uh, where we suggest these nations are located. So we've got Rosh there in the middle, which is a key leader, who's Prince of Rosh, this man Gog. Meshach and Tubal, Magog and Gomer over in Europe there. Tagama, Persia, Libya, Ethiopia. There's uh, Egypt there, which we still know as Egypt, of course. There's a few others which we haven't come across yet in the record. Tarshish in green up the top left and Dida and Sheba down the bottom right. We'll get to them in due course. So who are all these nations? <clears throat> well, firstly, let's start with Rosh. Rosh, we suggest, is Russia. We can go to a, a number of sources to substantiate this. I've chosen tonight to look at the Russian Chronicles, which is a recent book which documents ancient chronicles which were compiled to do with the history of Russia. Compiled, the, the primary chronicles compiled in AD 1111. It traces the origins of the people right back to the Tower of Babel. And they've come up and said that they were called by the name Rus, of the land of Rus. There's another chronicle, the Novgorod Chronicle, which also comes up with the name of Rus or Russia by the Romans some years later. So we can see that these names are very close to Rosh in the Hebrew and as it's today, Russia. So there's one source where we can substantiate that Rosh is the ancient name of Russia. What about Meshach? Well, Meshach, we suggest, refers to Moscow. Jusenius talks about Moscai being a, a proper name, a barbarous people inhabiting the Moscian mountains. And Easton's Bible Dictionary, again, refers to the Moscian mountains and a group of people known as the Muscovs. Again, you can see very closely uh, the, the, the spelling and the pronunciation is very closely to, uh, aligned to Moscow today. So we've got... <clears throat> Two uh, identities which uh, identify with the nation of Russia today. Rosh, Russia, and Meshek, Moscow, which is, of course, the capital of Russia today. What about Magog? Well, Magog identifies with the Scythians who moved north to Georgia in southern Russia and then across to central Europe. So we can see there on the map that that area of Magog is you know, particularly the region of, of Germany and some surrounding areas. We've got evidence there from Josephus, who wrote just after the time of Christ, who uh, again says that the, the Magogites uh, were identified with the Scythians. Jerome also has a similar quote, as does Herodotus in 450 BC. So Magog, think Germany and surrounding area. Goma, Goma, <coughs> Josephus says, was founded, founded those who the Greeks call Galatians or the Gauls. In Young's Concordance, we find further information that this group of people spread themselves uh, southward and westward to the extremities of Europe. And in Encyclopedia Britannica, they're identified as being France and Belgium. 
What about Tagama? Again, Josephus tells us that uh, Tagama was associated with a people known as the Phrygians. And Jacinius Hebrew Lexicon links um, Tagama with the Armenians. And we can tell in the, in the Penguin Atlas of World History that these peoples came to inhabit the region we know of as Turkey today. So <clears throat> that establishes the identity of, of some of the main nations which are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38, which form the confederacy which are going to invade uh, the land of Israel in the future, we believe. So we would expect at some point in time to see these nations coming together. If they're going to form a confederacy against Israel, we would expect to see some alliances formed in due course. But what do we see today? If we take Russia and Europe, do we see any, any ties between these two? Well, the map you can see there, it's actually a rather old map, and uh, it's in Russian, so that won't help you, but you'll be able to identify by the actual uh, land masses where we're talking about, and the red lines are the important ones here because they denote the gas pipes which lead from Russia to Europe. You see, Europe is very, very reliant on Russia for its gas. Some nations take 100% of their gas from from the nation of Russia. Others partially from Russia, partially from other sources. You see, Russian gas stops Europe freezing. So having been the, one of the primary sources of gas, if not the most significant source of gas for Europe, gives a lot of power and influence to the nation of Russia. If Europe disagrees, Russia can just turn down the gas and at the same time, turn down the temperature in the middle of winter. So Europe has some dependency on Russia. Of course, things have been a little bit icy between Europe and Russia in recent times, things like the poisoning of the opposition leader, Navalny. Of course, Germany didn't like that, and Navalny ended up in, in Germany to receive medical attention and so forth. And there's still a bit of a tiff going on, but are you going to let your nation freeze over the welfare of one individual? Probably not. And so the frosty relations are beginning to thaw a little bit. And there's now talk of a Russia-EU summit. And those which are prominent in advancing this are France and Germany. Goma and Magog, if you like. And this is very recent news. In fact, just a week or so ago, 24th of the 6th, reported in, in the media just back then. What about some of the other associations? Russia and Iran, or Persia as it's known of in Ezekiel 38. Well, <clears throat> it's an interesting one. Russia certainly has got ties with Iran. It walks a little bit of a tightrope because it's also Russia pretends to be friends with Israel at the same time and Israel and Iran are bitter enemies. Russia provides Iran with, with armaments. Russia enters in with Iran on, in joint naval exercises. So you can see there is certainly quite a strong tie, even though it's a delicate relationship which Russia is maintaining with the nation of Iran. In the same region, we've got Russia and Syria, and we're well aware of Russia's entrance into Syria just a few years ago. They've now got three air bases there, or military bases. And here's a picture of Putin at one of those military bases alongside Assad, the, uh, the president of Syria. And you can see who's calling the shots and who's sitting back uh, listening. Russia's also got its finger in the pie with nations like Libya and Ethiopia, sells arms to Libya. Ethiopia it's had uh, joint military conferences uh, for year after year. And just recently there was another conference between Russia and Ethiopia. In fact, 
There's an alliance between Russia, Syria, Iran, Iraq. It's known as the four or the four plus one coalition. It's a coalition which is against ISIL. Of course, that's nowhere near as strong as it used to be. But these nations have banded together to oppose the power of ISIL. If you're wondering what the plus one is, that's Hezbollah, the terrorist organisation to Israel's north. And these nations, plus the terrorist organisation of Hezbollah, banded together to overcome the nation of ISIL. Now, that's not to overcome Israel, sure, but there is an alliance between these two nations. In fact, the US was invited to, um, by Russia to join, and of course they refused. They too have got a common enemy in ISIL, but they've got a different way in dealing with them. So we can see in these nations which are listed as being confederate in coming against the nation of Israel, there's quite a degree of strength of ties and alliances between them. Well, what about the invasion? <coughs> we read of the invasion in, in verses 9 and onwards. It says there that thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. To pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without bars and having neither bars nor gates. Sorry, dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. So you can see there's a, a massive confederacy which is going to sweep down into the land of Israel like a storm. It's going to cover the land like a cloud. Israel will be totally overcome. They won't be able to see beyond the enemy. And all thy bands and many people will overcome the meagre nation of Israel. Oh yes, Israel's got a formidable army, a formidable air force, a formidable navy, but it's going to be totally overwhelmed by the invading army, the confederacy of all those nations led, we believe, by Russia. And they're going to come to take a spoil and to take a prey, to take advantage of this people of Israel which has been regathered out of all nations. We won't turn to it, but we get more details of the drama of this event in the prophet Zechariah, chapters 12 through to 14 the awful invasion and the effects on the people of Israel that will transpire. Now there is some opposition to the invasion. There are other nations which are going to be on Israel's side. They won't be totally left on their own. We read of this resistance in verse 13. It says there, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, that's to go, that's the, the head who's head over this confederacy who's invading the land of Israel. Go, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? It doesn't seem like a particularly violent response. It's rather meagre. It appears that they're somewhat taken by surprise at the onslaught of the invasion. Well, who, is, who are these uh, identities? Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions thereof. Let's go back to our map firstly. We're suggesting that Tarshish is up there, top left, that's obviously uh, Britain, and down there, Dedan and Sheba, it's the area of, um, of um, Saudi Arabia and, and Bahrain and so forth. Let's start with Tarshish. Who is Tarshish? Well, if we look at the scriptures which mention Tarshish, we find that Tarshish is an island power. It's a maritime power. It's to the extreme west of Israel. It's a merchant power. It has the symbol of a lion. It is a source of tin and it has an alliance with Israel. Now, 
Of all these identifying characteristics, there's one in ancient history as being particularly unique, and that is being a source of tin. That was only true in ancient times of Britain. And so I suggest to you that the, the identity known as Tarshish in Ezekiel 38 is the ancient name for Britain. In fact, even in relatively recent times, Britain has been uh, symbolised by a lion, as it's described there in Ezekiel 38, verse 13. Tarshish and the young lions thereof. And here is a poster from World War I appealing to men to sign up for the war effort. And uh, <clears throat> it says, Helped by the young lions, the old lion defies his foes. Enlist now. So whether that was inspired by someone's understanding of Ezekiel 38 or not, I don't know. But certainly Britain is symbolised by a lion. I have a book called The Lion in the Sun, which talks about the fortunes of Britain as they rose to power and that power subdued. The lion is the symbol of Britain. Who then are the young lions? Well, the young lions here are obviously the, the Commonwealth countries. Countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, India and so forth, other Commonwealth countries. And so they all signed up for the war and were fought alongside their British companions in World War I. So we find that on one side we've got European nations together with Russia and on the other side we've got Britain and the Commonwealth countries. So therefore, we wouldn't expect to see Britain and Europe particularly close in the, the time just before the invasion of Israel. And so in relatively recent history, we've had Brexit, which has taken Britain out of the EU. It was said uh, by a um, Remain voter who was uh, interviewed by The Telegraph at the time of the vote back in 2016, this is the biggest decision our country will take for a generation, but one of the few things not on the ballot paper is the British weather. You see, the weather at the time of the vote was such that it influenced the vote. The vote was expected to be a remain. The opinion polls were saying remain in Europe. Everyone expected it to be a remain. And when the vote came out, it was a leave. 51.89% of Britain voted to leave the EU. You see, at the critical time, there was a storm which descended over London. London had a particular weighting towards leaving the EU. And the storm was such that people who would have gone out to vote stayed home. It was a ferocious storm. And so the weather impacted the vote. There's a quote there from the Telegraph and another quote from the Washington Post. Massive flooding in London is preventing thousands casting their Brexit vote, both from 2016. But if we turn to another source about 580 BC, we find in Ezekiel 38 that Britain and Europe would be on opposing sides just prior to the Battle of Armageddon. So who did control the vote for Brexit? We'd also expect to see Britain have strong ties with the Young Lions. And one of the outcomes of uh, COVID-19 has been Australia's, of course, uh, stirred the pot with China and is a bit on the nose with China now, and so China's punished Australia with all sorts of uh, trade uh, issues with coal and barley and so forth. Well, <clears throat> it so happens that to compensate that, Britain and Australia have formed a, uh, a free trade agreement. So that's not directly in response to the issue with China, but it does help. Um, Britain and Australia have formed a free trade agreement. It's the first of many which Britain expect to form following Brexit. Just on the uh, the. COVID-19 and China implications trade. 
Australia has strengthened trade with other Commonwealth countries as a result of the downturn of trade with China. For example, Australia had a boatload of barley destined for China when China refused to take it. The boat went next door to India. And now Australia is looking very strongly at India uh, for strengthening trade ties there. And there's other promising trade opportunities for Australia with other Commonwealth countries, as there is for Britain as well, coming out of the EU. So we're seeing the Commonwealth coming together in stronger terms. So <clears throat> Tarshish there is therefore Britain, and not on the map of course, on the other side of the world, we have uh, the Commonwealth countries uh, which are also doing her bidding. Dedan and Sheba, if you look on a, an ancient atlas, you'll, uh, an atlas of, from ancient times, you'll see that they are there uh, in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and that particular region. And so these are affiliated with Israel in the time when the invasion comes on the land of Israel. Do we see any ties with these nations, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the like? Well, <clears throat> we mentioned before the Abraham Accords and Saudi Arabia has not entered into the Abraham Accords, though President Trump hinted strongly that they were in talks in preparation for them to enter into the Abraham Accord. Whether that happens or not, we don't know. But certainly there are reports of secret meetings between the Saudi Crown Prince Salman with Netanyahu in a Saudi city November last year. It's, uh, it's also apparent that Saudi Arabia has got strong and strengthening ties with Commonwealth countries, including Australia. Russia stopped selling uh, wheat to Saudi Arabia to bolster their supplies in the face of COVID. And Australia said, thank you very much. We'll take up that order. They've also got uh, strong ties with India in terms of trade. And, and uh, those two countries work closely together and, uh, and have meetings with high officials on a semi-regular basis. Well, we'd also, now we've sort of established who's who in this particular conflict, we'd also expect to see conflict forming between, say, the UK and Russia. Do we see this? Well, yes, we only have to look at the press for the last week or so, and we see that Britain, of course, uh, took one of its warships past Crimea, which is occupied by Russia. And uh, a British defence correspondent on board the uh, particular warship of the UK has this to say. <coughs> I'm on board the warship in the Black Sea. The crew were already at action, stations as they approached the southern tip of Russian-occupied Crimea. Weapon systems on board the Royal Navy destroyer had already been loaded. This would be a deliberate move to make a point to Russia. HMS Defender was going to sail within the 12-mile, 90-kilometre limit of Crimea's territorial waters. The captain insisted he was only seeking safe passage through an internationally recognised shipping lane. Two Russian Coast Guard ships that were shadowing the Royal Navy ship tried to force it to alter its course. At one stage, one of the, Royal, well, one of the Russian vessels closed in to about 100 metres. There was also about 20 planes in the sky, Russian planes, uh, trying to influence the, the movements of this particular ship. Russia said, we know it's just a game being played and they're just trying us out and trying to see what information we'll release and we worked out their game and we're playing our cards very close to our chest. Thank you very much. They also said that they fired warning shots, which Britain denied. Reality is they're probably all playing games. It's a game of, of life and death. So we see that the tension is there. We don't have to look far at all to see the alliances and the tensions between all the nations that we have uh, seen referred to in Ezekiel 38. We've seen that in the future these will come to a great conflict in the land of Israel. When Russia and the Confederacy invade Israel, 
Britain, Commonwealth countries, some of the local Arab countries will protest the invasion. We find that Russia will rather decimate the land of Israel. In other passages of scripture, two thirds are cut off. Horrific things are done to the occupants of Jerusalem in particular. Many are taken captive. And then when it looks like Russia is absolutely supreme and has gained the victory, then God intervenes. And we read of this again in Ezekiel 38. Verse 18, When Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, my fury shall come up in my face. There shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, a huge earthquake. All the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I'll plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I'll rain upon him and upon his bands and upon many people that are with him and overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. And so God is going to let Russia go through and overtake his people Israel. They will be humiliated. They will be decimated. Many will die. Many will suffer hugely. And then God will judge Russia. If you like, you could say God first allows Russia to, to rend his judgments on his people Israel, who of course have rejected him and rejected his son and gone against their privileged position, despite the great promises that God gave their forefathers. So God punishes his people Israel and then he punishes the aggressor, the Russian-led confederacy, who take vengeance on his people for their own, for their own good and not, of course, for the will of God. And at the end of the day, the one who stands supreme is not Israel, not Russia, not Gog, but God. And God will be seen as the supreme God, the God of all the earth in that day. Now, the title didn't just refer to Armageddon. It also referred to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we started in Revelation 16, the only passage in the scriptures which refers to Armageddon by name. We drew a number of points out of Revelation 16. There's one other point which I'd like to take. At this time, when all the nations of the earth are gathered together to Armageddon for a battle in the great day of God Almighty, at that time... It says here in parenthesis in verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. It's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. He gave the words to his apostle John to write, the words of Revelation. And he says, at this time, at the time of Armageddon, I'm going to return. I'm going to return as a thief. What does that mean? Is he going to steal things? No. No, not at all. He's going to come as a thief in that he is going to be unexpected. You don't expect a thief to come and break into your house. If you knew the thief was coming, you'd wait up, leave the lights on. You may even call the police so they're ready. But you don't know. The thief comes when you're not aware, when you're not expecting them. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come to the world as a thief. Of course, he doesn't have to be a thief to us because he's told us what's going to happen. Most of the world are ignoring it. There's one million or so people in Adelaide, but there's, there's only a handful of us here tonight. Most people are ignoring the warning. But he's told us. He's coming. And therefore he doesn't have to come unexpectedly for us. When he does come, he's going to set up his kingdom. And the prophet Isaiah tells us of this kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we move now from 
Jerusalem being a battle scene, a horrific battle scene, to now being the capital of God's kingdom with Christ as king and a great temple set up there which people will come to, to hear God's teaching taught. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a vast change and a wonderful future in store for Jerusalem, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel and the whole world. How does this affect you and I today, tonight? Well, as we've already intimated, this doesn't have to take us by surprise. We've seen what's going to happen. God has enabled us to be prepared. And the way he tells us to be prepared is to read the Bible, to understand it, to believe it, and to be baptised. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is will be saved, but whoever does not will be condemned. So he places the offer out to all of us to read his word, to understand it, to believe it, and then to be baptised and identify with him. And if we do that, we'll be saved and we'll be part of that glorious kingdom which is soon to come. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.